In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You are advised that any view expressed by the host or their guest are not necessarily the views of the owners or management of Toginet Radio, Togi Entertainment, or the Owners Group, Inc. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, part of the Her Insight Network on Toginet. Vivian is here to talk to you, to encourage you, and to show you how she had a successful homeschooling experience with her Wildflower Academy, and that her kids turned out great, and that with God's help, you can create the same experience she did. From her beginnings in Hostert, West Germany, to Dallas, it's been quite a journey, and her abilities to adapt, survive, and thrive are what make her unique in homeschooling. So have your pen and paper ready. It's The Sociable Homeschooler. And now, here's your host, Vivian McNenny. They loved praise from men more than praise from God. John 12, 43. Am I brave enough to speak up about my faith with people who may think it uncool to be religious? In the words of British author A.N. Wilson, a former outspoken Christian basher, Rather than being cowed by anti-God fanatics, I now relish the notion that by asserting a belief in the risen Christ, I'm defying all the liberal clever clogs on the block. Let's remind ourselves daily, hourly, minutely, that we are tempted each day to love praise from men more than praise from God and turn ourselves around. Good afternoon. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler, and I'm your host, Vivian McNinney. Time for another cup of tea and a friendly little chat on this cooler, wet summer's afternoon. Yeah, the cold front came in at the beginning of the week and we're rejoicing in low 80s temperatures. Crazy, isn't it? Not cold at all. It's rained and all my plants are exuding moisture and good health. Even my tomatoes and peppers are flourishing again and I may be harvesting in a few months. Buddy's back. My friend emailed me very apologetically and told me her sob stories about the last-minute decisions to go out of town. No room at the inn for the Labrador, and no room in the car to transport him to Ohio. So, honestly, could we take him again for another weekend? A holiday weekend? Actually, a long weekend? What would you say? How could I resist? I said, yes, of course. So he's here, silently sleeping next to me as I do my show. Hi, buddy. I have a little clock that I keep with me during the show. I'm just one of those people that likes to see an analog face. I've got the digital thing on my computer, but analog gives me a much better picture. Anyway, I won it at Christmas when we did a gift exchange. I don't know why I just said won, but without the personal touch of buying and shopping for a specific gift for a specific person, it did feel rather like winning a gift. This was a theatre gift exchange, the kind where you can choose an opened gift or steal one from someone. Actually, that's not an opened gift. That's an unopened gift. They have them on the table. You can either go and pick one that you don't know what it is, or you can go and take one from somebody that you rather like the look of. Anyway, I hate those kinds of gift exchanges, don't you? Probably because nobody usually wants to steal the rotten gift I've opened, so I get stuck with some re-give. An unwanted gift. No one wanted this little clock. So I took it home and used it in my garden room, where I'm sitting now, with its face looking out towards the garden. I could turn and see the time while I was on the patio doing my early morning devotions. It's plastic and in the shape of a barnyard hen, and I've grown accustomed to it during the 15 years of its life in my house. But first, the second hand fell off. But it still kept on telling time. Occasionally, 
the minute hand would get caught up with the floating second hand and grind to a halt, but nothing a little shake wouldn't remedy. And today I'm looking at its face, which is towards me, because I'm not outside broadcasting, I'm inside, and although I can hear it ticking strongly and loudly, I've just noticed the minute hand has come off too. So the hour hand is valiantly telling me what hour it's nearing, but I can't tell what the minutes are before or after. I'll miss its cheerful little face, although I thought it the height of tackiness when it first came under my roof. Hence its job as time teller for the short hour I spent outside in the morning. Anyway, I'm a lay reader at church on scheduled Sundays and I prepare my portion of scripture that morning since there's usually nothing but inflection and punctuation to watch out for, especially from Paul who seems to work without breathing. Some of his letters have very long sentences that may or may not make absolute sense depending on who's reading them. Anyway, a few years ago, I decided to prepare my reading a couple of days in advance, and it was a good thing, too, because it was chock-a-block with names that, according to my priest, who made a comment afterwards during his sermon, were up until now, gesturing toward me, unpronounceable. I had practiced for days and became blurred perfect in my rendition of how these names were to be uttered. Well, earlier this year, when I got to church, I opened my service bulletin only to find this same reading. Nehemiah 8, verses 2 through 10. It had come around again, and I was slated to take a crack at it. Luckily, my memory and my accent served me well, because we had about 20 minutes before service and no time to research pronunciation. I made the sign of the cross and invoked some heavy-duty Holy Spirit intervention to speak me through this one. I went out to the altar to silently read through the passage and noticed that the difficult names were in bracketed italics, meaning they were optional. However, when I looked at the service bulletin, they did not have the bracketed italics. So I had no choice but to read the scripture as it was written. Now, if this is a difficult situation for a reader to be in, it's an excruciating experience for the listener. Names like Josabad, Sherebiah, and Shabbatai have been successfully massacred by the glorious Texas drawl many a time. So I put on my best English accent and plowed forth pronouncing the good old biblical names Hannah, Haliah, and Hashbadna, with the fluency and confidence with which I pronounced Larry, John, and Billy Bob. I was focusing on getting through the reading without a blunder and didn't look up in fear of losing my place or my rhythm. When I finished, I went to take my seat. I don't know if you remember that my girls and I served together at the altar, and we sit opposite each other monastic style during the service which has its ups and downs, especially when I forget that my priest who sits next to me can see their facial expressions as they respond to my facial expressions. As I sat down, I glanced up and my girls across the way were open-mouthed and sparkling. I kept my eyes cast down as I didn't want to grin too hard, not in church. Afterwards, my daughters treated me to the expressions that had crossed our priest's face while I was reading, and one of my cohorts in the pew came up to me and said, I'm so glad I didn't have to read that. I'd have massacred it in true Texas style. Heck, yes. I said the trick was to rally forth as if the names were commonplace, and since I was English, I'd get away with it, because no one would question my English pronunciation, and nobody did. Well, I'm going to go to my book, my book excerpt, and um, this week it's chapter 8, and it's called All Our Worlds a Stage, and my excerpt is taken from my early life and introduction the footlights and grease paint at my school and college. A very early introduction to performance came about when my brother and I were young. 
It was pre-posting and boarding school, but post-Germany and living with relatives. We'd just moved into our Georgian house, or should I say cottage, the tiny place where my mother refused to entertain anyone but the local priest and a teacher or two from the adjoining school. All children love to make up stories, I'm sure, and we were no exception. I had a long white doll's bedsheet, which I wore pinned to my boy short hair all weekend. It looked exactly like a white sheet pinned to my head. So I avoided the mirror once I'd secured it because I felt like a princess or a pioneer or a ravishingly beautiful girl with, a pretty, with pretty long hair all the time I wore it. Our favorite play was Cowboys and Indians. I'd be in the wagon, which doubled as our drawing table, which was sturdy enough to carry our weight as we raced across the wild plains of America. My brother played my brave cowboy husband, who would be beside me whipping the horses into full gallop. You see, I had one of those even then. When Indians attacked, he'd have to jump down, leaving me and my beautiful hair to protect the wagon, its contents, and any children we may have had. We were always triumphant and spent many a night around our campfire drinking coffee, eating beans, and telling Wild West stories. On Sundays, we had a regular theatrical game we would play called Mass. It was an accurate rendition of the tridentate service we'd just attended. The Latin was imaginative gibberish. Neither one of us was fluent or could read properly yet. My brother was the priest by default, and I was a beautiful congregant with long hair, who also doubled as a nun, since my sheep could do service as a veil if it really had to. During communion at the makeshift altar rail, fire and brimstone would descend on me in the form of rolled up bits of coloured paper thrown by my brother towards my head. The beautiful woman with long white hair would collapse in a heap of remorse and grief because she'd not been to confession the day before and was daring to take communion with a sin on her soul. When I arrived at boarding school, things became a little more professional and intimidating. Every Saturday morning, Long before the frogs were truly cleared from our throats, we'd assembled in the hall of our convent, which served as an auditorium and a gym, and set up enough chairs to seat all the girls from the first form up, numbering about 90. We'd sit in classes, waiting quietly for our music teacher, Mr. Carrot, the only male member of our faculty and father of one of my classmates. He'd arrive punctually at 9am and take his seat at the grand piano, to vocally warm us up for an hour before we embarked on learning the theory behind the tunes of popular and classical songs we'd sing for the second part of the lesson. On the first Saturday of every new academic year, he'd spend the hour listening to our voices. This was all well and good, if he wanted to hear them in a group, but I discovered on my first ever Saturday that he actually wanted to hear each one of our voices on its own. I was not a singer. Oh yes, I love to warble in the bathroom at home. Who doesn't? I thought I'd mastered the Alleluia sung by the Vienna Boys Choir, but my opinion was not shared by anyone else in my family and probably would not be shared by anyone at my school, especially not Mr. Carrot. The song we all sang as our solo was Early One Morning, something I knew but hadn't practiced recently in the privacy of my bathroom. There were about 40 girls ahead of me. He was working methodically through each class alphabetically and I had time to sweat. I noticed that some of the girls sang only part of the first verse, which was a relief. I also noticed that most of those before me faltered on the high note of the final line. Those morning croaks in our throats didn't help. My turn came too quickly and I stood and opened my mouth and out came a little sound that didn't resemble in any way the voice of the bathroom. The massive hall ate up all my volume and Mr. Corot was cupping his hand around his ear to hear me. 
I struggled through the whole verse, obediently cracking on the final high note as my predecessors had done, and sat down quickly before a blush spread from my neck to my arms and down my legs. I spent the rest of the term on tenterhooks, wondering if I would be asked to raise my voice alone once more. But happily, I wasn't called upon for my vocal skills again that year. It wasn't until the summer term that I learned why the music teacher had wanted to hear all our voices individually. At the end of every school year, for six nights during the final week of school, we would stage a massive production of a classical operetta for all the parents, surrounding villages and townspeople to attend. The first one I was ever involved in was Waltzes from Vienna. There were many others that all blended from the year to year. I'll be back in about 90 seconds to finish. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Here comes Motherhood Talk Radio, the most powerful voice in women's issues today. With Sandra Beck and Christy Holly, Tuesday evenings at 6, 5 Central, part of the Her Insight Network on Toginet.com. Motherhood Talk Radio provides a powerful platform for women today by giving interesting, inspiring, and inspirational information to mothers around the globe as they navigate everything from child care to corporate formation. Motherhood Talk Radio will have best-selling authors, gurus of happiness, women of interest, who every single day make our world a better place for our families. Motherhood Talk Radio, powered by Motherhood Incorporated, is co-hosted by corporate executive Sandra Beck and stay-at-home mom Christy Holly. For more information on each and the show, go to MotherhoodTalkRadio.com. Mom, this really is your show. Motherhood Talk Radio with Sandra Beck and Christy Holly. Tuesday afternoons at 6, 5 Central. Part of the Her Insight Network on Tuggynet.com. What's your story? Are you living it? Well, you could be. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbrey. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on Tuggynet.com. Her passion is helping others discover, create, and live their personal brands. Yep, you heard me. You have a brand. No different than Coke, Pepsi, or Nike. You are a walking, talking, living, breathing brand. You're not a logo. You're not a tagline. The choices you make become the path you take. This is your brand. Now, live your story. Your brand is not just what you say it is. It's also what others say it is. So what are you communicating? And how can you create an authentic brand? We'll take on these challenges with What's Your Story? Every week, Hillary will feature teens, moms, and organizations that are learning and living their story. Now, her passion is to help others discover, create, and live their personal brands. To find out more, go to inspiredbyfamily.com. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbrey. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginet, part of the Her Insight Network. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. I was always cast, not for my wonderful alto baritone voice, but for my height, as part of the male chorus. Surprise, surprise, there were no boys in our school, and the nuns weren't too fond of joining forces for any length of time with any of the local grammar schools. The nearby boys' Catholic school would have qualified if it had still been open. It had been closed down due to lack of funds. And the Protestant school, Stowe, 
didn't meet with approval because of its blatant Henry VIII ties. In later years, we girls forgave them their protestation and joined forces with the Stowe boys socially whenever we could spring ourselves from the cloisters. Boys spelt unwanted pregnancies in the suspicious minds of the nuns of Jesus and Mary. Consequently, in regards to producing a financially successful operetta each year, the nuns considered cross-dressing to be the lesser of two evils. And to me, in my early teens, it all seemed perfectly natural if we were to get the job done. Rehearsals for the annual operetta occurred during the Saturday morning singing class and continued in the afternoons after hair washing and shoe cleaning. By the time half-term was over, we were spending most of Saturday staging the show and in the final weeks when exams gripped the school, every spare evening was consumed with staging, singing and learning lines. A classical ballet piece was always featured in the last act and I'd become a better dancer than I was singer or male chorus member. After the first year, I was usually cast as the lead ballerina, which meant that I played a man in the first act and a fairy in the second act. My introduction to the theatre was a mix of contraries. Similarly, at college, which was also all girls, my parents shared the nun's paranoia about boys and pregnancies. We also had to play all the male roles if we wanted to perform any of the classics. I played Macbeth in Macbeth, Rosencrantz in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and Dead, and Vanya in Chekhov's Uncle Vanya. By the time I'd left college and was in my early 20s, I had never worked with actors, the male kind, and never played a female unless fairies counted as girls, which gave me an open mind for what was to come what was to come when we decided to explore community theatre as a possible enrichment subject for Wildflower Academy. Well, I see I have my guest with me on the line waiting to talk to me. My guest is Dr. Marlene McMillan, a lobbyist for the Liberty to Homeschool. She is billed as America's expert on the principles of liberty and is here to talk to us about the power of words, ideas and freedom and her new book, The Five Pillars of Liberty. Welcome, Dr. Marlene. Thanks for joining me this afternoon. Well, thank you for having me. Looking forward to it here. Well, good, good. Is it raining where you are? Yeah, absolutely pouring. Yes. Yeah, it's just started. <laughs> I was just coming back to my show, and I went, oh, I hear that noise, and it's the rain. Oh, my goodness. But at least it's a little bit cool, as I said earlier. Cool, you know, in the 80s seems a little bit silly, but at least it's not in the hundreds. So <laughs> we're all grateful here. Correct, yeah. All right. Well, um, first off, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, your homeschooling experience. And um, how many children did you homeschool, Dr. Marlene? I homeschooled all seven of mine from the very beginning uh, all the way through. So they never went to a public school, We, mm -hmm. but we did many creative different things with putting several families together I had uh, some help with advanced placement subjects and chemistry and physics and things like that. Uh, and I would say homeschooling was the best decision that we ever made. Okay, so how many years ago was that when you started? I, my first son was born in 1978, and I already knew then that the plan was to homeschool. Mm -hmm. I had no earthly idea that there would be seven children, and all the ups and downs and trials and, and things that happened with that. Um, but I was a home birth mom, very well educated, uh, and loved education and teaching and all of that. And so uh, started way too early in some ways with my boys because I had three boys first. Uh -huh. um, but it was still one of those great things 
that has made uh, the children and I very close, and it's been very good for character and opportunity and many things that have happened over the years. All right. So um, you said you knew right from the beginning that you were going to homeschool. Were you homeschooled? Did you know people who homeschooled? I was not. My mother was a public school teacher. Mm-hmm. But when I was in about eighth grade, I found out uh, through a uh, trip that we took to Kentucky, a mission trip, way up in the hills of Kentucky where the riverbeds are the roads and there are no roads when, when it rains. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just a de- delightful meeting these people. And public school only went to eighth grade there. Uh-huh. And then the, if for anybody to go to high school, and only one girl in that whole region went to high school, and she did it by correspondence. And mm-hmm. that's when the light bulb went off, and I said, wow, I could get so much more done in a day if I didn't have to fool with all this extraneous stuff at school. Mm-hmm. So I proceeded to ask my mother to homeschool me, and she said, that's just absurd. You know, there's a problem here. I can't quit teaching in order to do that. And she was the kind of teacher that... On the first day of school, it was their happiest day of the year, and the last day of school, she literally cried. She really? she loved the classroom so much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was the student. I was a very good student, but I the first day of school was my saddest day of the year, and the last day of school was my happiest day of the year. Mm-hmm. So I loved education, but I didn't really like school, even though I excelled in what I did. Yes, I had, I had a young man on who... Um, had a similar experience in Boston, and he actually asked permission to remove himself from school when he was like 15, and he did correspondence courses himself with Harvard, and he said, I just schooled myself uh, for the rest of my, my years and through my college, and uh, I said, well, good for you <laughs> that you were able to do that. You know, he just hated, he didn't like being in the classroom, but loved to learn, so um, that's, that's really, really good, and so have any of your children gone on to homeschool? Uh, well, we don't have any married at this point. Okay. We have um, several that have finished college. Uh, we have a Marine officer, uh, a weapons company commander. Uh, it's very interesting to see the different things that they've taken on, uh, mm-hmm. but we don't have anybody married. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, okay, so you, you call homeschooling for you and your family was a conviction. Can yes. you tell me a little bit more about that? Okay, well, let's talk about the difference between a conviction and a preference. A conviction means it's what you believe no matter what. And a preference means you really like the idea, but if it gets too inconvenient, you know, a a preference only lasts as long as it's convenient. And so I really had my conviction to homeschool tested very severely because for a time there I was very ill myself, which makes it quite difficult. Uh, with very little help at that time. I've had other times where I've had uh, delightful help, and I've really been blessed with great friends and, and, and have had help over the years. So, you know, I, I don't want to make somebody think that you have to do everything yourself in order to have a successful homeschool experience. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you better be on top of what's going on. And my tutors or anybody that helped me were people who had come through my own study groups. So mm-hmm. I had already schooled them in a method of thinking that was very important to me. So, but a conviction really means that you will do it no matter what. Mm-hmm. And so we continued homeschooling. And, and I think the other thing is, as the children get older, they really have to buy into it for themselves. Mm-hmm. It's not something you thrust upon a teenager. 
It's mm-hmm. something that they need to have as their own conviction, mm-hmm. and and that makes it be able to carry forward when the circumstances are certainly not in your favor. Mm-hmm. And you said you um, trained your older children, some of your older children, to help you uh, or to teach your younger children, and how, how did that work? Very much so, because one of the basic life philosophies of, of you know, now I teach about liberty and all, and, and one of the foundations of liberty deals with being self-governing, with assuming responsibility for yourself. So you can only have as much liberty as you have the character to maintain. And so I taught them very early. If they governed themselves more, then they had a lot more liberty. And if you do that with the older ones, then they set a standard that carries down, not quite automatically, but with much less work. Uh, I mean, I really want young moms to know that whatever you train the first one to do will set a pace for what happens from there on out. So work really, really hard with those first few children, and they will help you with the rest. And so that's what I did. And so the older ones then, when especially when I was, was really sick, I mean very, very seriously sick for a time in there, the older ones kicked in and said we wouldn't want, not only would we not want to be put in a public school or even go to a Christian school at that point, but we would not want our younger siblings to have that happen either. Mm-hmm. So they we, pretty well ran, ran the household for several months and really most of a year while I was down. That, that's absolutely marvelous. And these were young teenagers or were they older teenagers by that time? Well, they would probably be like 15, 13, yeah. and 11. Yeah, yeah and, yeah. and so they weren't really that old, but they kicked in like grown men and yeah. did whatever it took. Yeah. Wow, that's wonderful. And did you do that? Were you living in Fort Worth at the time when you were doing this? Oh, yes, yes, yeah. in Tarrant yeah. County. Not, not necessarily in Fort Worth proper, but yes, in yeah. Tarrant County, Texas. And so yeah. lots of trips back and forth to Austin yeah. and um, really many opportunities to um, work with the media about what is homeschooling, why is it so important, and how does someone get a superior education uh, because the premise is that it would be inferior and uh, that the children are missing out on something. And well, that's right. Yeah, that's right. They, they, they think that mothers aren't trained teachers, and so what are they doing, you know, trying to teach their children when they're just moms? <laughs> I'm going, no. <laughs> right. But, you know, the mom loves their child more than the government can ever love them. Mm-hmm. And, that, and the other thing about home education is let's say we have someone with less education. I mean, I have, you know, I have degrees and, you know, I have a very, very good education. But many people that don't, let's say they didn't even finish high school, they still love their child more than the government ever can. And one of the greatest opportunities of homeschooling is the re-education of the parent. Mm-hmm. So I find a mother who didn't have as good of an, edu- of an education is getting one while mm-hmm. she's teaching her children. That's right. That's absolutely right. And... Um... It looks as though we're getting ready. I've got about uh, 15 seconds left uh, before the break. And um, when I come back, I want to talk to you about your um, book, The Five Pillars of Liberty. And I want to explore a little bit more about um, you saying that um, the more self-governed you are, the more liberty you have. So um, we'll be back in 90 seconds uh, to talk with Dr. Marlene.
How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Join Learning and Laughter with Louise every Wednesday at 9 Eastern, 8 a.m. Central on Toginet to discuss fun, fascinating, and educational topics. Each week, Louise will be talking with a variety of guests, ranging from authors, educators, parents, filmmakers, athletes, and entrepreneurs, just to name a few. You know, when it comes to learning, the sky is the limit. And so will the topics that are covered here on Learning and Laughter with Louise. Louise Sattler is a school psychologist who has worked within the fields of special education and bilingual education. She also owns a successful company, Signing Families that creates DVDs and special workshops to teach sign language and instructional products for people of all ages and needs. With new DVDs coming out soon, check her website for more information at signingfamilies.com. From time to time, Louise will be joined by her daughter, Natasha Sattler, who will give a college-age perspective to the show. So pour that morning cup of coffee and join us here on Toginet every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Central. You never know who will show up for Learning and Laughter with Louise on toginet.com. Let's chat it up with Bloom Talk with Barb Scarlock on Toginet. Thursday afternoons at 3 Eastern, 2 Central. And find out how women are growing, blossoming, and blooming in their friendships and careers, health, and so much more. It's Bloom Talk with Barb Scala. Check out our website, bloomwithbarb.com. Whether you want to transplant your life or just do a little pruning, Bloom Talk will inspire you to cultivate the lifestyle you want to live. Join lifestyle coach and co-author of Sanity Savers, Barb Scala, each week on Bloom Talk and sprout your dreams. Grow your life. I hear a lot from women. I want meaning in my life. I want a fulfilling life. I want to do something that's exciting. And I can control my life instead of my life controlling me. I can tell the world this is who I am and, and this is what I'm all about. Barb will introduce you to dynamic guests and real women who are redesigning, rebuilding, and reinventing their own lives. And Bloomstorm, how you can dream, create, and grow the lifestyle you want to live. It's Bloom Talk with Barb Scala. Thursday afternoons at 3 Eastern, 2 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginet, part of the Her Insight Network. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Well, I'm back and I'm talking to Dr. Marlene McMillan and um, we're going to be talking um, this segment about um, Dr. Marlene's uh, latest book called The Five Pillars of Liberty. So will you tell us, give us a little outline as to what this is um, about? Well, it's really about how to learn to think from principle. When you homeschool, you get to establish definitions and you get to allow people to really think at a level that sometimes everything's going by too fast when Mm -hmm. there's just one book on top of another. And so I think it can be succinctly explained in the difference between freedom and liberty. Many people think of those as being the same word. But freedom is I can do what I want to do, when I want to do it, the way I want to do it, and I don't have to answer to anybody. And it takes the responsibility out of it. Liberty deals with Well, one of my definitions of liberty is it's the opportunity to make a choice, to assume responsibility, and accept the consequences. When you live in liberty, you have responsibility. So when you are homeschooling, you're taking responsibility for your children's education, but you're teaching them to take responsibility for their own education. Okay. So okay. give, me, yeah, give me your definition of liberty again. You said it's the opportunity to make a choice. Yes, to assume again. responsibility 
and to accept the consequences. Okay. And so what you basically have... Okay. What, what you have with that is when you teach somebody that you, have, you are responsible for your choices, then you're no longer looking for someone to bail you out. You're assuming responsibility for the choices you make. And so in the five pillars of liberty, one of the things I do with my materials is you cannot pass an issue on to the next generation. We cannot predict all the issues that our children will face after we're gone. Uh-huh. But if we teach them to think from principle, and they learn the principles of liberty, the principles of success, I have another one, you know, I have audio courses that deal with these subjects, mm-hmm. and so the five pillars of liberty is taken from an audio course that's called also the five pillars of liberty, mm-hmm. and when you learn that uh, there is cause to effect, that every idea has a consequence, mm-hmm. that in itself is a lost thought almost in this world. Mm-hmm. And so freedom isn't really liberty? Freedom is not really liberty. Freedom mm-hmm. might be used in that way, but a nation that starts talking about freedom will start eventually letting their true liberties, their essential liberties, erode. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Benjamin Franklin said he who would exchange his essential liberty for temporary safety deserves neither liberty nor safety. When you start thinking, I have a chart that deals about the, the cycles of liberty, and it deals with how the first generation is passionate about liberty, and they really value it, and they plant the principle. It's like if you make a bank account, you know, they put in the principle, and they put it in with passion, and they worked with blood, sweat, and tears to get it. But the next generation comes along, and they don't erode the principle, but they, they pretty well live off the interest, and it's important to them but not as passionately important. The third generation comes along, and they, did, they didn't pay the price that the first generation did, and they start eroding the principle, and they start living off the principle. Well, pretty soon you can't do that, uh, and you, you know, or you won't, if you don't start making more bank deposits, you'll have nothing left. And so as a nation, and really as a world, we've been so focused on our own rights and on our own what do we get out of it that we don't think about what price do we have to pay because the opportunity of citizenship comes with a price and a responsibility. And people want the benefits, but they don't want to pay the price. Well, when I'm trying to teach my children some of these um, heavier, you know, sort of trying to grasp um, some of the economics maybe of, of the world, I always try and bring it down to, you know, your family, which you can. I mean, you can take a nation, you can take the world, and you can actually bring it down and find an example in your family and I have a friend whose father had um, a business that had been passed on to him by his father. And, you know, you're right. Each generation, I mean, the grandfather struggled. He was an immigrant into England and he struggled to build this business. And he passed it on to his son who, who had seen his father's struggle. And so was, um, you know, sort of um, sympathetic to it or whatever. And um, he worked hard. But by the time it got down to this one per- this person that I knew, which was like, the third or fourth generation down, it was more of an entitlement than anything else, you know, <laughs> and because they had not seen that original struggle. And so what this, what this boy's father did was he made him start at the beginning on the bottom of the rung, and he had to work his way up through the business. And he couldn't do it. After five years, he said, mm-mm, too, too difficult. And he just left and went and did something else. 
Well, entrepre- and- yes, entrepreneurialism gets a very bad rap many times. Uh, but if you're really an entrepreneur and you're creating something out of nothing, the level of work and responsibility is so high, it is not the easy road. Mm-hmm. 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 So how, how, do you keep, how do you keep something like that, you know, how, how do you keep that, um, I don't know, the, the, yeah. the, the passion or whatever it is, how do, how do you keep that going from generation okay. to generation? There's a statement that a relay race is won or lost in the passing of the baton. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. you start seeing liberty and responsibility and your opportunity as something that has to be renewed with every generation, if there is a torch of liberty like when they carry the Olympic torch around and they pass it from one person to another, the torch of liberty must be passed in its entirety to the next generation. And mm-hmm. so there are systems of actually, there's a, uh, principles of thought, and a lot of what I deal with in the five pillars of liberty are the five basic principles that if you get those five, now there's more, but the point is if you don't get those five, then you won't understand the rest and you won't value liberty at a price to see that liberty is like air. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't think about your air. You don't think mm-hmm. about breathing that much until you either find out the air around you externally is polluted or you find out that there's something uh, that's diseased in your lungs and it's impairing your ability to breathe. Mm-hmm. So we just take that for granted. Mm-hmm. And so we get where we take liberty for granted until either it's restricted from within or from without. And, of course, you need to uh, beware of the tyrants from within are far more dangerous than the tyrants from without. Mm-hmm. And so even in the homeschool movement, there's leaders who care more about their own self than they do about empowering the people or really just helping the people be themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, leading, a true leader leads someone toward their convictions. And so a tyrant makes them give up their convictions. So learning these things becomes exciting because it empowers someone to understand they can take responsibility. When you think that you can't do anything about whatever the problem is, then you just give up. There's a hopelessness that permeates. And one of the great things about learning the principles of liberty is it is empowering. It's exciting. It gives you control again of your life and says, you know, it says it, you know, inside of yourself, you, you realize, I can do something about this. I can turn this around. Okay, so where can we, can we go online and find out more about what you're doing? Yes, uh, it's at whylibertymatters.com. That's W-H-Y, Liberty, L-I-B-E-R-T-Y, Matters, M-A-T-T-E-R-S.com. And I really do teach Why Liberty Matters and do teleseminars on the subject and have some other programs and things available. Now, and you also um, have link. You have books and you have links to your, some of your other books, the one on Poverty 31 the 31-plus blatantly yeah. ignored causes of poverty. Yes. Yeah. And that really deals with the simple and free solutions to poverty, whether it's in the yard next door or around the world. And these are the simple and free, or relatively free things that people ignore in order to make poverty complicated and expensive. Yeah. yeah. All right. Now, I've got one question for you that I noticed on one of your pages. We were, you were talking about... Children who have been taken to church year after year by their parents, and then they leave their faith. And you said something about progressive teaching. Is that what you said? 
Well, uh, in progressive education, maybe. Progressive uh, education. Talk about that just for, I think we've got a few more minutes left. Okay. Okay. Basically, what you have is you can teach a child, you can tell anybody anything you want. You can say, this is what we believe. But your children know deep down inside, what do you really believe? So this gets into methodology also, like in a classroom. In a more traditional classroom, whether it's in a private school or a public school, we have what group thinking going on. We have group projects and group grading. I think that's part of what I didn't like is I'll, 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 I'd rather have my own grade than the group grade. Mm-hmm. And so what you have going on in a church is really the best example, but this will translate so fast into the home You'll get it immediately. And that is when a preacher gets up and he says in the church, we believe the Bible. We believe everything in this Bible. But then everyone goes to a small group. And in the small group, they're asked, what do you think about that? What's your opinion? How does that verse make you feel? Well, all of a sudden, the people in the group became the judge over the Bible rather than the Bible being the judge over them. So in our homes, if the parent is very judgmental or the parent, uh, there's a statement that says what a parent allows in themselves in moderation, the next generation will allow in excess. Mm -hmm. So your children know your weaknesses. They know your strengths. They know where you're incongruent between what you say you believe and what you really believe. So that makes sense, yeah. Yes, and, and, and this is huge of why mm-hmm. do children leave, many times even, I'm sorry to say, homeschool children, mm-hmm. leave yeah. the family. They, they leave the faith of the family. Mm-hmm. They leave the belief system of the family. And a lot of it has to do with the cultural conditioning around us because we should be, making, we should be changing the culture, not having the culture change us. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, I'm, our time has come to an end, and um, I'm going to have to wrap up now for my next break. I've been talking to Dr. Marley McMillan about the liberty we homeschoolers have to educate our children at home. As an entrepreneur herself, she got her doctorate while homeschooling her seven children, and she's been a guest on television and radio and written several books. You can find her online at drmarlenemcmillan.com, and her latest book, The Five Pillars of Liberty, is coming out soon. Thank you so much, Dr. Marlene, and have a wonderful 4th of July weekend. And um, I will direct my people to your um, website on my uh, TommyNet website. Blessings. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. No more mommy madness. The Sanity Hour is the antidote. It's the Sanity Hour with Ann Dunnewald. Monday evenings at 6, 7 central. Part of the Her Insight Network on Toginet.com. Join Ann as she guides parents through issues that arise from simply living in our current high-energy, high-pressure culture of perfection and achievement. Moms and dads are bombarded daily. Sign up for this, buy that, enrich your child's life, enhance your child's development, worry about this danger, provide this experience. Ann Dunnewald, Ph.D., is here to help. 
She's a licensed psychologist in independent practice in Dallas, specializing in women's mental health issues. And her mission here is to help women sort out the guilt and anxiety of the unrealistic demands of motherhood on a daily basis. For more information on her and her books, go to andenewald.com. That's A-N-N-D-U-N-N-E-W-O-L-D.com. Arming women against the pressures of modern motherhood. Here to give moms balance and expectations. Cutting themselves some slack. It's the Sanity Hour with Ann Dunnewald. Monday evenings at 6, 7 Central. Part of the Her Insight Network on Toginet.com. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on Toginet with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website and thus NotSoSoccerMom.com. Tom was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb with Jill Hickey. Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginet, part of the Her Insight Network. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Well, I'm back, and I've just finished a delicious coffee, one of those sorts that's sweet, and it's got whipped cream and caramel sauce all over it, and mm-hmm, mm, it was so good. Thank you, my daughter. My guest last week was somebody called Larry Kay. He was founder and president of Animal Wow, a great company that promotes Judeo-Christian family values of love and responsibility in its work to help children become safe and successful with pets. Well, I love pets, and I pointed out to Larry Kay last week that most of the time the family pet really belongs to the responsible adult who looks after it, in our case, me. My children always say, how come Watson, our schnoodle, follows mum everywhere and not us? I fed him, made sure he had water, walked him, cleaned up after him, groomed him, trained him, and took him to the vet. The children played with him, enjoyed his company, and left him when they went off to college without a backward glance or worry that he'd be neglected or mistreated. Being English, I come from a long line of pet lovers. My mother had a dog who was in her life when she met my father. He was a fox terrier and ended up being good with children. When we returned to England from Germany, Chummy was not on the manifesto. My parents said he wouldn't survive the quarantine, whatever that meant. I was only six. I later learned that quarantine referred to rabies. Upon entering England with a pet, a quarantine of six months was imposed to ensure that rabies was not brought onto the island. I'm sure he went to a good home. Or maybe not. Our next dog was a vicious little cavalier King Charles Spaniel. Although we live next door to a famous animal lover, author and veterinarian Desmond Morris, we kept Carl, despite the fact that he advised us that with so many lovely dogs out there, waiting for a good home, which ours was, thanks to my doting parents. Why put up with a mean dog? We did, for five years anyway, until we got our posting to the Lebanon. This time, the dog stayed with my grandmother, who found him to be a control freak. 
After a year, he conveniently met his death when he was hit by a car while squatting to pee in the gutter outside her London house. Dogs numbers three and four were Jack Russells of doubtful behaviour, depending on yours and their ages. The first Jack was Judy. She had a hole in the heart. My parents spent more money on her than I'd seen in my lifetime. She died after about five years. My parents mourned piteously while I tried to convince them to come and visit me and their grandchildren in America now that they had no ties. Instead, they immediately refilled their empty nest with Jodie, another female Russell, who ended up outliving my father and eventually dying in her sleep in her basket without my mother noticing, or at least not for several hours. As a parent who had come from a dog-loving home, I vowed that no pet of mine would eclipse the presence of my children. It may be tempting sometimes because dogs are very obedient and don't talk back and always eat what's placed in front of them. But for the most part, my children took priority over the dog, the hamster, the tadpoles and the fish the birds, the raccoons, the squirrels, and the cats, and the snakes, of course. The primary caregiver of all these animals through their caves was me. While I tell a lie, I have to admit there was one exception to that rule. Can you guess? Yep, the snakes. I wanted to make pets of the mice that were live feed for the ball python. When we went to frozen pabulum, I never knew what I was going to find in our freezer when I went out for a loaf of bread or a steak. Um, if a live mouse survived the night in the snake cage, it was released. What did I just say? Yep, released. Not in or near our house, but somewhere. My herpetologist son said it deserved its freedom. I'm sure the owls loved us. When my son went to A&M, I cunningly talked up the snakes and the kudos I'd received from my sons for allowing them in my bathtub to shed and my house to dwell. I managed to find them a good home with another homeschooling family in our church with two real boys. They're still alive and we get news of them every once in a while. Snakes survive in captivity a long time if they're well-fed, warm and safe. This preamble brings me to a story about my oldest son who's been in a flat by himself for two years now. He decided on his own and with a little help from several of his married but as yet childless friends who have multiple dogs to fill the void to heed their stories of canine fidelity fidelity and join the club as it were my handsome husband and i turned to look look at each other and our eyes shone with knowledge born of experience but there was no imparting that wisdom to our oldest son who may not have thought he knew everything when he was a teenager but is making up for it now that he's in his 20s and independent he spent a weekend looking for a dog at the pound shelters and animal marts in the local area all he knew was that he was looking for a medium-sized mutt with no grooming necessary. He found Dexter, a seven-month-old black lab chow mix, paid for him and arranged for delivery the following day, Sunday. He took me out to buy doggy paraphernalia and spent way too much money on a leash, bones, chews, and food. After having him for two hours, doubt set in, and the phone calls began. You're supposed to be on my side, he complained. I want positive comments, not negative whistled down the phone when I suggested Dexter may only be house-trained in his crate. Not having a clue about crates myself, I recommended he speak to someone familiar with the crating process. He didn't want to talk to anyone else but me. Well, every time I get a new dog, I said, I get this sinking feeling of, oh no, what have I done? I was trying to make him feel better. It takes time. He'll eventually worm his way into your heart, I encouraged while thinking, unless he poops in your bed. I didn't dare voice that experience. I compared it to having a new baby, and he said, oh, but you're not going to do it on your own with a baby. And I thought, well, not always the case. 
After a fraught night where he had to get up a couple of times to clean up and take the dog out, he brought Dexter over to me at 7.30 in the morning so that he, the dog, didn't have to be alone all day in his flat while he, my son, went to work. Now do you wonder why the dog always followed me around? No crate came with his personal effects. Dexter was the perfect guest. He peed and pooped outside several times, learned how to sit for a biscuit, ate a chew, drank water, got spooked by a loud noise, and retreated outside under a bush for several hours until I leashed him and brought him inside with the lure of a piece of barbecued pork. He snoozed while I worked and snored his way gently through the afternoon. Unbeknownst to me, my son was making arrangements to return the dog, which he did as soon as he picked him up from the McNenny doggy care. He called me the next morning after an uninterrupted night's sleep and said, You know what, Mom? I don't feel nearly as lonely now that I don't have the dog, if you know what I mean. And I told him I did. There's a great deal of loneliness in raising anything alone. A dog may be hard work, but it's worth it in the end if you ever get that far. And on that note, welcome back to Buddy, my grand dog at the T-Balls. I had the pleasure of his company for the whole holiday weekend. Good boy, buddy. Well, I want to return to my opening scripture verse from John twelve forty three for a moment. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. And share with you a true story from Joshua Harris's study guide that goes with his famous book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. I'm sure you've all heard of that. Joshua was at a Christian music festival to speak on the topic of purity. Part of his message was a challenge for the girls to dress modestly. The day was hot. Many of the girls wore bikini tops and short shorts, and he began to feel sick at the thought of how he was going to deliver his message to this crowd of underdressed youth. He decided to omit the section on modesty because it would offend them. He justified his action by thinking, they'll roll their eyes, or they'll snicker, or they'll think I'm being judgmental. But his conscience pricked him, and he realized he was more worried about impressing the crowd than about pleasing God. He put the section back in his notebook, and when he came to the part on immodesty, he admitted to the crowd that he'd been tempted to leave it out. In his words, he said, I want to be more afraid of God than I am of you. He says after the presentation, countless young people came up to him and thanked him. He says he cringes every time he remembers how close he came to leaving that section out. He obeyed God. Isn't that a wonderful testimony? This week, I joined my youngest daughter on the college track. She's looking up schools, asking for advice from peers and not so peers, deliberating about her major, taking suggestions that she can go undecided, except she knows she needs a scholarship and dance would be a no-brainer for her. Plus, she could use her academics to get further scholarship if necessary. However, she doesn't know if she wants to dance as a major or join a company or major in something else. She secretly wants me to intervene, and I secretly would like to, so that the constant dallying would cease. But I've never made a life decision for my child, especially not an 18-year-old child, so why start now? And so it goes to the point that she can't talk about it without becoming frustrated and pushing it to the back burner of her mind. Now, I want her to go to college, and she does want a degree, but she admits she's not ready to rush into it. I have to admit, I do worry about her and her prospective transfer to a four-year college. With some restrictions at home on her electronic access, how will she adapt to no parental monitoring? I didn't have the same kind of worry when my first child went away. In the six years between my oldest going off to college and today, things have changed so drastically that my parenting has had to change drastically too. My oldest son had no cell phone. Imagine that. 
six short years ago, we didn't have cell phones like we do today. There was no texting. There was no wireless internet. He actually had a land phone in his dorm room, which we had to connect. I didn't have to worry about what he was doing in his, in his room on the computer or who he was talking to on his phone late at night, God knows where. Today, a mere six years later, my children can be connected online all the time. They need to be, they say. My daughters won't turn their phones off. They may miss an important call or message, they say. At the theatre, I turn to talk to someone and notice they're busy with their fingers texting. And I hesitate to interrupt them as if it was someone they were talking to in person. My drastically changed parenting is taking the form of warnings. I say, nothing's private online. I caution them that their messages on Facebook can be viewed and shared not only by their immediate friends, but by friends of friends of friends, which makes for many removals from the original few people messaged. I admonish them for talking to people they've never met and ask them, how do they know if the person they're connected to is really who they say they are? Even my youngest admits that if people she meets face-to-face at her job are not who they appear to be, a recent and shocking discovery she's made, then how can we be sure of whom we're talking to online? From my older children, I met with looks that label me as an old fogey who doesn't know what she's talking about. I do keep up, and I do know. Just check out www.childrenonline.org. My children admit to me that my fears sound old-fashioned, as in maybe valid two years ago, but not now old-fashioned. I'm shrinking. Well, on that note, I've come to the end of another hour for another week. It's been brilliant. I'm off to rehearsal and an explosive 4th of July weekend with my mad grand lab buddy. So goodbye until next week. And thanks to my handsome husband who believes in love at first sight, our four children who are the result of that belief, Stacey Cannonberg and her Insight Network, the staff at Toggynet Radio, my guest Marley McMillan, and all my listeners, especially St. John's. And next week, my guest will be Steve Wolf. So join me for another hour of The Sociable Homeschooler. Have a safe holiday weekend, and I'll see you next week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Thank you for joining us for The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney on Togi.